Welcome to Under Our Feet Season 1 bonus episodes. In the bulk of Season 1, we explored the deep history of the state of Wisconsin, starting over 2 billion years ago, and ending with glaciation about 14,000 years ago. But geology didn't stop at some point back in the past. We live on an ever-changing planet, and the processes that shaped our planet are still ongoing today. This is true even in the relatively stable mid-continent of North America. Especially, water continues to shape the landscape and the climate continues to change, though at a much faster rate than it might have in the geologic past. So now, we dive into those processes that are still shaping the landscape. This week, specifically, we dive into Wisconsin's beloved lakes. But before we get into all that, a shout out to our most recent supporters on Patreon, Mackenzie Reynolds and Chelsea Volpano. That's right, the same Chelsea that did such an excellent interview last week about lakeshore erosion. She's been a fan of the show since day one, and now I'm giving even more thanks to her. Mackenzie and Chelsea are both getting some under our feet bumper stickers, and you could too. In fact, I just put some in an envelope to Mackenzie and mailed them out this week. To support the show financially on Patreon, check out the link on our website, uofpod.org. Thanks. Now that that's all out of the way, welcome to Under Our Feet, where we tell the stories of the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. This is the Season 1 bonus series, Current Events in Wisconsin's Geology. This week, we're learning about Wisconsin's 15,074 freshwater lakes. Lakes are a huge part of life here, be it for fishing, weekend trips to the family cabin, or summer traditions going back generations bringing families together at lake resorts in the Northwoods. Madison itself, where I live, is punctuated with lakes, Mendota, Monona, and Wingra. The Ho-Chunk, who lived here for 12,000 years before the first white settlers began to dispossess them, called the Madison area Dejope, which means four lakes. These freshwater bodies are inseparable from the experience of the state, but it's not all fun and games. Humans have an outsized impact on the lakes we exist amongst, on what I consider a geologic scale. To learn more, I talked to a local limnologist, which comes from the word for the study of lakes, limnology. That word comes up a lot in this episode. When I conducted this interview, we were sitting in an office in the University of Wisconsin's Center for Limnology looking out over a frozen Lake Mendota dotted with the tents of ice fishermen. It's April now, and the ice has since melted, so some of the references aren't current, but you can hold on to them until the lakes freeze over again next year. With that, let's get on to the interview. I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself and, and where you are, what you do. Yeah, my name is Hilary Dugan, and I'm an assistant professor at the Center for Limnology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm a limnologist, so I study inland waters, mostly lakes, interested in water quality, thinking about long-term change in lakes, how climate and land use are, are changing our waters in Wisconsin. Yeah, and so clearly we're sitting here overlooking Lake Mendota, and there's lots of other lakes here in Wisconsin, so I was wondering if you could sort of Talk a little bit about why lakes, studying lakes is important and why Wisconsin is a place that you are able to do that. I definitely feel blessed to be a limnologist in Wisconsin. 
it's kind of funny being on the job market and thinking about going to get jobs in other states that that don't have very many lakes. Uh, and Wisconsin is well known for being one of the birthplaces of limnology as a field of study. So people have been studying Lake Mendota for over a century. And it's incredible to work somewhere where you have data that goes back that far. Because we can think about change from actual data, looking at data from you know the 1920s to 2020 and comparing that. So Wisconsin is an excellent place to study water quality, especially given the gradient of lakes in the state. So we have thousands of lakes and it ra they range from just really high quality, pristine systems in the Northwoods to lakes that are pretty impacted by humans in the Southern part of the state, thinking about sort of agricultural impacts. And, and at the same time, everything's being impacted by climate. Awesome. And so I guess the, the next question was like, what was your path to getting to Wisconsin? And looking at your page, it looks like you started off studying lakes in Antarctica. So. Yeah. So I, well, I'm from Canada. So I feel like I'm naturally predisposed to enjoy lakes. Grew up spending my summers on a lake. Pretty fortunate just to have that kind of lived experience of, of really treasuring that time and went to college not entirely sure what I wanted to do and ended up taking a course in geography and being kind of blown away that you could do science and be outside at the same time. And that, that really changed my path. Not that I necessarily had a path before that, but just loved it and ended up changing my major to geography. And so I got to take courses in hydrology and geomorphology and soils and climate and limnology. Um, I went to college at Queen's University, right on the shores of Lake Ontario. And if you go a little bit further north, you hit the Canadian Shield, where there's just, again, hundreds of lakes. So I got to take courses studying, studying lakes, both physically and biologically. And that led to a summer job as a research assistant going to the Canadian High Arctic to study lakes. So that was really formative, spending a summer, you know, in as remote a place as possible. And Again, just being amazed that not only could I be a scientist and be outside, but also get paid to do that. And from then on, have just been loving studying lakes in a number of different settings. But yeah, my, my earliest experiences were in the Canadian Arctic, and that led to, eventually led to Antarctica, and then to Wisconsin. So there's, there's more detail I can go into there, but that was, that was the start. Yeah. I guess one question is, are there any through lines that you've sort of felt in your experience between the lakes and those kind of wildly different places? Yeah, I mean, I think that initially I was just really excited to be in a, in a place that felt remote and untouched. And obviously that's not true. You know, you, you start digging into it and, you know, people have been prospecting for oil up there and their, you know, climate affects everything. Um, but those, the similarities between the Arctic and Antarctic were, were definitely me trying to find places that, that felt wild and sort of apart from kind of human influence. And I think that in studying that, I sort of grew as a, as a scientist wanting to also study places that were impacted by humans and that maybe what I had grown up with, I took for granted. And there was a lot of really important things happening where I lived that I also wanted to be part of. I didn't want to just be studying things at the poles that were 
we're really separate from people's lives. And so it's been a great opportunity in Wisconsin to both, you know, study a lake that is, you know, literally 50 meters from my office, as well as being able to study places that are, you know, thousands of miles away from here. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I think one thing you said that's kind of interesting is that there's this, for, for you, part of getting into it was growing up on the lakes and then realizing you could be outside for for a career. And it's kind of interesting talking to people through doing this podcast. There's kind of two camps they fall into. And one is that, and that's where I fall. It's like, I like, I started doing geology because I wanted to go out and camp and with, for school and hit things with rock hammers and that. Uh, the other half is like people who want to do like science and then find that geology or limnology, like the these kind of applied ones let you do science, but in a way that's that's engaged with the world um, differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that traditionally it's definitely been the case that our field's been dominated by people who sort of grew up on lakes, which is is great because you naturally have this, this sort of feeling when you're on water that's part of you because you grew up doing that. But I think it, in some ways it's also just limited the diversity in our field. And so now we're trying to be better about you know, broadening that to, you know, you didn't have to grow up in a lake to study lakes. You don't have to know anything about them. Um, And so before we sort of had this expectation that, yeah, well, you know, the people who get summer jobs here will have, know how to drive a boat already because they grew up driving boats. But, you know, realizing that that's really limited sort of that, um, our ability to sort of recruit a more diverse uh, background of students. And so it'll be interesting to see if that changes in the future, hoping that it does. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think geology is grappling with a lot of the same things, about people feeling comfortable going out into the field for stretches. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I want to sort of turn to, like, maybe some basics about lakes, because, like we were talking about, lots of people love lakes. There's guys out ice fishing that we can see that probably have done that every winter for the last 45 years. But what what do they probably not know about lakes? Like what's a lake structure? What things are happening under the ice right now or in the summer? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot going on. Um, I think for me, one of the most important things to know about lakes is they really integrate what's happening on the landscape. So every lake has a watershed, which is sort of the area of land that drains into that lake. And so, you know, especially especially in Wisconsin, where you're standing right now probably drains into a lake at some point. There's parts in the Driftless area that don't. There's a lot of rivers out there. But, you know, if you think about where you live in Madison or in Wisconsin, it's, I think it's important to know, you know, where the rain falling in your driveway ends up. And so here, you know, the rain falling on my house drains into this lake that I'm looking at right now. Uh, and that's important to me thinking about, you know, what that water picks up and what's draining into it, how urban infrastructure influences that, you know, so what, what watershed do you live in? And then Lake Mendota here drains into Monona, down into Ibiza, into Kaganza, into the Rock River, into the Mississippi, into the Gulf of Mexico. Like that transport of water is so fascinating. And lakes are different than rivers in that they really slow water down. And so a river kind of shunts that water downstream quickly, whereas rain falling into northern Dane County is going to flow into Lake Mendota and stay there for four years before it flows downstream. And so that just gives it time time for different processes to be important, both physical processes, 
like mixing and what's happening with oxygen as well as biological processes that then influence you know the entire ecosystem the reason these guys are ice fishing for whatever kind of fish they're looking for today but you know all of that influences the habitat and you know your your ability to go out and recreate yeah so what um in this podcast so far we've talked about various kinds of lakes kind of like glancing blows so like kettle lakes as a glacial feature or these lakes as being an ancient pre-glacier river valley that's Mm -hmm. now filled in with sediment or lake superior as a product of the mid-continent rift what what are sort of are there different types of lakes that from your perspective yeah certainly um my my second lecture in limnology is all about sort of the origin of lakes and I laughed at one of your previous episodes where the guy from Hawaii was like, the answer's always basalt. And for Canadians, the answer's always glaciers. Like, they they made all lakes. <laughs> um, and so it's it's really interesting actually seeing lakes that aren't made by glaciers. Um, but certainly most of the lakes in Wisconsin are kettle lakes. You know, the glaciers definitely just like left chunks of ice. And, um, and yeah, some are pre-existing river valleys. And Superior is fascinating in that it's just, you know, there's the, the fault and the, also the glaciers. and But, you know, you go other places in the world that weren't glaciated recently, and there's there's lots of lakes. I mean, there's tectonic lakes, so the big African rift lakes, um, Lake Baikal, these lakes that are hundreds of meters deep, you know, formed by plates ripping apart, um, are, you know, fascinating to think about just the volume of fresh water they hold. You know, these lakes that we think are big just sort of pale in comparison. And then... You know, different types of of glacial lakes. I mean, glaciers are phenomenal at carving out basins. Things like, you know, karst topography you can call sinkhole lakes, volcanic uh, basins. Yeah, there's certainly sort of a, a myriad ways lakes can form. Globally, glaciers are still sort of the dominant process, and that's why we see so many lakes in, in Canada and Russia. Um, sort of everywhere the that last ice sheet sort of came down to. So, um, yeah, one of the reasons we're blessed with so many lakes is because of the glaciers. Otherwise, you know, you go into somewhere like the Driftless area where it's it's really a river-dominated system. And so the older the landscape, the more likely it is that if there were lakes, they got filled in and, you know, slowly became rivers over time. And then there's some parts of the U.S. where the lakes you see are all man-made they're all dammed rivers that were turned into reservoirs for drinking water power recreation you know there's lots of reasons to build a reservoir and so we're we have so many natural lakes here it is kind of unusual yeah i I grew up in north carolina and so we have all i think the only lakes i ever was on were dammed lakes Mm -hmm. and lake norman i lived near and it was like the largest man-made lake east of the mississippi or something and it, the structure of like here lakes are like circular whereas that had all these little it was narrow and had all these little branches going off because you were seeing that river system that had just been flooded yeah 50 years ago so like the, the the nature of the lakes that i grew up with versus what we have here is totally different yeah i mean they're very obvious on google earth that sort of sinewy those arms that go up and stretch yeah it's you can pick out a reservoir pretty pretty quickly if it's a damned river I guess one more sort of point here that I want to dig in on a bit is like kettle lakes versus non-kettle lakes. Because one of my things, I guess this probably isn't always true, but that kettle lakes aren't connected to a river system generally. So how does that change what 
happens in a kettle lake versus what happens here where there's the Yahara River flowing mm-hmm. in and out. Yeah, so there's there's lots of ways to differentiate lakes. One is just the origin um, of how it formed, but then there's also differentiating them based on hydrology. So um, lakes that aren't connected to rivers we call seepage lakes. So their hydrologic budget is from precipitation and groundwater. Sometimes you have headwater lakes where the water coming in is from rain and groundwater, but the water there is a river going out, so that's common as well. You have sort of these flow-through drainage lakes like Mendota, rivers coming in, rivers going out. Um, and so certainly that contributes to the, the water chemistry. Often seepage lakes with no rivers, the, re- the residence time, like how long the water stays in the lake is a lot longer. So in the, we have a lot of seepage lakes in Wisconsin, um, especially in the north. And it can be a small lake, but the water can stay there for 20 years because there's just, you know, they're only fed by rain and a bit of groundwater. Whereas... You have a lake with large rivers coming in, you know, that residence side can be closer to a year, downstream of Madison months. And so, you know, it's, those rivers are bringing a lot of stuff in. They're also taking a lot of stuff out. So definitely influences the chemistry. The other thing that's really important for lakes is, is the depth. So the physical process of lake mixing is really important. It brings oxygen down to the bottom it brings nutrients from the bottom up to the top and with deep lakes and when i say deep i mean you know more than 10 meters deep we have this physical phenomenon where in the summer the surface water stays really warm and the bottom water stays really cold um, due to density so fresh water is coldest at four degrees celsius so that cold colder water tends to sink and the lakes stratify into these two layers and so in lakes in southern Wisconsin, we get the lakes mixed in the spring when they're all the same temperature. And then in the summer, they stratify these two layers where they just, they're not mixing. And so what's happening in the surface of the lake can be just really both physically but chemically different from the bottom. And they don't mix until the fall. Um, and we call that a dimictic lake. It, it mixes twice a year. And when we get that stratification, it sort of fundamentally changes water chemistry and habitat. Um, and that's all based on depth. And so the hydrology matters a lot, but also the depth matters. And so um, you can have kettle lakes that are, are really shallow. They mix all year. Um, we call those polymictic. Um, and those are going to behave really differently from deeper lakes that are actually able to stratify. So then when you have that seasonal stratification, I'm, just, I'm thinking of this from a geology perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that where you would I don't know, get something like varves where it's you get annual layers of sediments from those seasonal mixings or? Well, you can. Varves are um, really common in lakes that become anoxic in the bottom. So don't have oxygen, which is common in uh, lakes that have a lot of sort of biological productivity. Um, So Mendota, for instance, as soon as it stratifies in the spring, all the oxygen in the bottom disappears. It's just taken up by microbes respiring. And when there's no oxygen, that limits the bioturbation in the bottom, so the ability of organisms to just kind of like mess up the sediment. Um, and so you do get layers forming when things aren't um, dis- disturbing the sediments. And so you can get varves. I mean, in we don't get a lot of varves in lakes sort of in agricultural regions because there's just so, there's just so much organic matter flowing in that seeing sort of annual signals is hard, but certainly if you look at a lake core from Lake Mendota, there are layers. Um, You can see sometimes calcium deposits. So you get whiting events, so calcium carbonate just precipitating out of the lake, forming 
carbonate layers. But you can't go, you can't count them like tree rings the way you can in some lakes. So you have to use some kind of dating method like Let Du Ten or the CCM Peak or something to to relate those layers to years. Wait, so sorry, this is just that's okay. Let, let Two Ten. What's like the the timeline? Like the yeah. Um, what range of ages can you get on that? Uh, in the last hundred years. Last so we're talking. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so you could carbon date some of the stuff here. I mean, there's. You, you see a big change in the lake sediments here when settlers sort of took over the landscape and deforested a lot of the land for agriculture and just got a lot of runoff. So you see a big, big shift in 1850 between what used to be sort of white sandy beaches yeah. on Lake Mendota, if you can imagine, to, to dark organic matter just running into the lake. So that's a pretty obvious change. In the last, you know, in the last couple hundred years, so we definitely, we definitely change what's sedimenting out of this lake water column. Yeah, I guess that kind of brings us, get us back on track here. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and and today is probably a great day to talk about this, and getting to how humans interact with land and water systems. This seems like a big one that a lot of your research lately has been on salts and road salts that we use on roads. And today, for the listeners, it's really icy because yeah. it was warm yesterday everything melted and then froze overnight um, so there's probably a lot of salt going down but what's the sort of the broad outlines of the problems or what you're working on with salt and lakes yeah so i grew up in a region that used a lot of road salt i think if anyone's lived in the midwest or northeast they're sort of familiar with like crunching down the sidewalk in the winter and i don't necessarily know how I got into studying salt in lakes other than looking at long-term data sets and seeing that there was just this, this pretty incredible increase in salinity. And certainly this is not a new topic. People have been talking about the environmental consequences of road salt for decades. Um, but I think there's been a resurgence lately. And what's interesting is that the field of limnology has been really skewed towards nutrient problems and other sort of uh, contaminants and pollutants. And there's just never, salt's never really been a major talking point. And maybe that's because of its simplicity. It's a very simple chemical compound. It stays dissolved in water. It doesn't have interesting cycles in lakes the way that phosphorus and nitrogen do. But yet we use so much of it on the landscape. So the U.S. uses... 23 million tons a year where it's just being dumped on the ground right there's no no one's picking up road salt it's just being dumped on the ground and it's going to flow into whatever body of water is close by so rivers lakes maybe the ocean in which case it's not a big deal groundwater and what we're seeing is that you know we're now getting on 60 years of pretty heavy road salt use and that's affecting inland waters everywhere, you know, definitely in urban settings. But, you know, there, we have roads just crisscrossing, you know, Wisconsin. And that if you're unlucky enough to be near one of those roads, you know, you're going to be impacted by salt pollution. And it's having it's now having devastating consequences for people's drinking water. So you see groundwater concentrations that are, are becoming undrinkable. And that's important for humans. It's, it's also important for livestock. You know, people, they're, you know, feed their 
their cattle and, you know, off of wells. And if it's too salty to drink, that can create problems as well. So, you know, we're now in this interesting point in time where it's become a problem for, for different reasons. And there needs to be, we need to sort of reevaluate our relationship with salt and treat it more like a pollutant than this kind of, you know, natural compound that we're familiar with, like we eat it. But when we use so much of it, it becomes a problem. I think I saw it. There's like a news story a few years ago about the salt coming into the port in um, Milwaukee. And it was just like a huge ship loaded with salt. Yeah. They actually just dropped some off at the port last week. I think I saw it again this year. Yeah. These Lakers just teeming with tons of salt. Yeah. I just remember seeing the image of the salt there. And it's, it's kind of incredible to think. Yeah, like that's especially, all going to be used. Especially when you see this laker piled with salt crossing the most important freshwater resource in the entire world, right? The Great Lakes. It's just, there's some kind of disconnect happening there. Um, and yeah, and that's, you know, for Wisconsin too, there's the environmental side of it. And there's also just the economic side of it. Like that salt costs a lot of money and we're importing all of it. So you know, in your history of Wisconsin geology, you will probably have noticed there's no giant salt deposits. So we're not mining salt in this state. Minnesota's not mining salt. So we're shipping that salt in from Canada, from um, Michigan. There's some salt deposits that are Lake Erie. Up the Mississippi River, we, we barge in salt. I mean, it's, it's coming in and we're paying a lot of money for it just to dump it on the ground and have it destroy our freshwater resources. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned that salt uh, really started ticking up 60 years ago-ish. Has it changed since then, the amount of salt that we're using? It it increased pretty steadily, sort of post-World War II. More people, more roads, better cars. People wanted to drive everywhere all the time. Wisconsin at one point had a a clear roads policy where they promised that there would be no snow or ice, which they have since revoked and it's leveled off lately and part of that is sort of being more cognizant of it as a pollutant there's been huge shifts in mindset on on salt use but that's it's really only been in the last few years where people have started realizing that oh we should track we should, a we should track how much salt we put down maybe we should track where we put it down before you know you were a plow driver and you just you know, your truck would be filled up and you, you didn't come home till it was empty. And now we're realizing that like, that shouldn't be the procedure. It should be, you know, we need to put salt where we need it. Um, but if you come back with your truck full of salt, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It doesn't need to be all used up. Yeah. Let's get back to the, the sort, of, sort of policy or practices in a second. But like you've, you've alluded to, it's bad for lakes to have salt <laughs> sure. in them. I wonder if you could ex- yeah, expand on why, why that is. Well, there's a few reasons. So one... Physically, salt, when salt dissolves in water, it increases the density of water. And density is one of the most important metrics when it comes to how water moves in a lake. So I alluded to earlier sort of the temperature effects on density. And temperature in freshwater lakes is usually the most important driver in density, except when you start adding salt. So what can happen is you can have salt come into a lake and sink to the bottom because it's denser And if you have enough of it, it just stays there. And that creates huge problems for oxygen and then habitat and this sort of 
cascading effects on biology. And we see that some places, there's lakes in Michigan that have become, the term is merimictic, they don't mix because of density, because of road salt. So that's sort of the extreme case. And we're trying to study that here and we think that we see some, some delays in spring mixing because of salt at the bottom of these lakes, but we're still sort of like trying to figure that out. And then biologically, it's, you're changing the, the, the habitat of everything that's living in the lake. Everything that's there has evolved to live in fresh water. And as you increase the salinity, you're causing sort of osmotic stress on species. Like you would never buy a freshwater fish and just like toss it in a marine aquarium. And some of the concentrations we see in rivers in urban areas in the winter are like getting close to ocean water salinities. Luckily, our lakes around here are kind of big enough to buffer that. But there's been a, there's a lot of work ongoing right now trying to look at kind of what species are tolerant of salt, what, who, who, who's not. Um, there's, it really is a huge spectrum. Um, but a lot of our native species are less tolerant. Invasive species tend to be more generalists. Things like zebra mussels came from brackish water. Zebra mussels don't care if it's salty. So it's, if anything, it's just hurting native freshwater species. And, you know, the same goes for humans as that salt concentration in our drinking water increases. It creates problems for people who have, might have, you know, heart conditions where they need low-sodium diets, whereas other people might be okay. Like, some people can eat a lot of salt, and it's fine, and, and aquatic organisms are the same. They're sort of that spectrum of who's impacted and who's not. And you layer on top of that evolution, there's some species, microbes, phytoplankton, where their life cycles are quick enough, there might actually be evolution ongoing as well. Like you're evolving to live in a more salty environment. Yes. So maybe this is a silly question and out of your purview, but I'm thinking of like, I just refilled the salt in my water softener. Yeah. So what's, this is just for me, what's yeah. happening in a water softener? And does that relate at all to what we were talking about, about salt in the groundwater and yeah, water so hardness? Water softeners are a huge... Uh, proportion of of sort of human derived salts in our ecosystems in some regions. Madison's a great example. Most people have water softeners. So you put sodium chloride into your water softener and you're exchanging that with calcium to to remove those divalent ions from your water your drinking water. Well, not your drinking water, you're doing it for your your appliances and your hot water. But yeah, all that salt will Go into your go into the sewage, and in the case of Madison, it's going to the sewage water treatment facility, and they can't remove salt. It's you know you the only way you can remove dissolved ions from water is through processes like reverse osmosis. Incredibly expensive. We think you think of like desalinization plants for drinking water in the ocean. Like they just use so much energy to remove salt from water that it's just not economically possible. So. All of the salt that we put in our water softeners goes to the treatment facility. They can't do anything about it, and it just goes into the Rock River in our case. So the effluent from the wastewater treatment facility is, they actually have an EPA variance because the chloride concentrations are so high. And so in that case, it's a point source pollutant. It's all going into the Rock River. So sorry, Rock River. And it can create really saline conditions in some areas Versus road salt, that's really distributed, where you're getting kind of salt everywhere. So those two those two sources are can both combine to to influence freshwater salinity. I guess there's probably not 
a great alternative to water softeners like so the technology's come a long way if you have a water softener that is old and you are putting bags of salt in it regularly you should replace it the technology's come a long way i mean i put i don't know we put put like a bag a year in ours or something and then there's also some sort of saltless uh technology now as well so um the the sewage treatment plant actually there's a lot of outreach on water softener upgrades because they have this salt problem and that's the easiest way for them to yeah. decrease their salt use yeah i guess maybe i should talk to my landlord because ours yeah. i put a bag in and it says it'll last 90 days yeah so that seems a Seems a lot worse than a bag a year. Yeah, and I don't know, they might, I'm not sure if they have any rebate programs like they do for sort of new toilets and things yeah. like that. They should. So, yeah, you talked about reverse osmosis being the only way to get it out, and that's not really feasible, um, especially in, like, if we're thinking of every lake in Wisconsin right, having yeah. salt. Like, you, maybe you could do that in one, in some hypothetical world, but you can't do it everywhere. Yeah. So, we talked, and we were touching on practices that are going into place to use less salt, and I know. Like what, what kind of things are happening? I can think of like they, and now they spray like a, a brine rather than rock salt. Yeah. So that's a, that's probably the biggest shift that we're seeing. So yeah, as you said, economically impossible to remove salt from water. It, it's possible, but it's not going to happen. So the alternative, which is the, is the smarter way is to just use less salt and so for the for road salt, there's been a big switch towards liquid application. And that you see that now with trucks sort of spraying brine on the roads, especially sort of pre-wetting before a storm. And essentially all they're doing is mixed is dissolving salt in water before they apply it. And there's two big benefits from that. One is that if you've ever been be behind a plow dropping rock salt, it'll just bounce on the road and like bounce straight into the ditch. And in that way, it's not effective at all. It's just polluting. Um, so when they're spraying brine, at least all of that brine is actually adhering to the road. Sticks to the road, doesn't sort of bounce off. And so in that way, it's just a lot more effective. They can use a lot less salt to do the same job. Um, and we're seeing in Wisconsin, it's been sort of a rollout county by county. So the counties that have sort of switched the earliest have seen 50% reductions in their salt use, which is huge. That goes along at the same time with shifts in technology. So GPS tracking, knowing where they're putting salt down, thinking about roads, do, like, do all the roads need to be salted? So in Madison, the city only salts major arterials and bus routes. Um, they just sand other streets. So I live on a pretty big hill from Madison and it gets, so that it gets a 95% sand, 5% salt mixture. And so right now it's just, it's like pure sand. <laughs> Um, uh, and that's what most of the, the city streets get. Is that what's in those, those garbage bins they put out too? Yep. 95% sand, 5% salt. So it says sand, but there's a little salt in there. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that and my hands get kind of dry after yeah. using it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, you're seeing that switch in, in practices. Um, I think there's still a really slow lag on private application and that's, that's more tied up in being worried about litigation, lawsuits. People tend to oversell because they're worried about being sued for um, negligence and slip and fall cases. And so there's been, on the policy side, there's also this work going on with people trying to pass legislation to limit liability, thinking that 
if you're a store owner and you have legal protection from lawsuits, you're more likely to hire a company that uses best management practices consulting, knowing that both of you are protected, you as the store owner and you as the applicator. New Hampshire's managed to pass that, but that's the only state. Um, but that's sort of another thing that's in the pipeline, which is how do we how do we make people feel comfortable that they should use less salt and not feel like something really bad might come of it? So I just saw the time and I have a class at sure. 11. <laughs> uh, I can be a couple of minutes late because I do want to talk a little bit. We've talked about this sort of a, I don't know, it's not a small issue, but it's a specific thing that's happening of the salt going into the yeah. ice. Another way that humans are impacting lakes that you talked about early on was climate change. And so I guess I saw that part of your research is into changing ice off dates on yeah. lakes. And so I guess if there was sort of any remarks you had on on how how the w- winter in these northern lakes is changing. I think this goes back to your question of how do you, you know, what would your path through? I mean, having studied polar lakes, I'm definitely interested in ice and winter lakes here. And in terms of climate change, winter is the fastest changing season in the Midwest. So we're seeing much warmer winters, especially winter nights, um, even though it might not have felt like that this winter, but it's warming. Um, And so we're seeing shorter winters, we're seeing changes in snowfall, and we don't really have a great understanding of what that means for the, for lakes. Do, you know, are lakes capable of just sort of resetting in the spring? Did winter matter? Is that impactful? So there's a lot of biological questions surrounding that change in winter. I mean, clearly it matters for recreation. You know, we have shorter ice fishing seasons, we have shorter ice skating seasons. I guess that translates to longer boating seasons. Um, But anyone who's spent time in a lake can tell you that those seasons are shifting. You know, things are freezing later in the fall and they're certainly melting earlier in the spring. And those open water conditions, you know, there's on the Great Lakes having impacts on erosion, um, having impacts on evaporation. In the interview I did on the lakeshore erosion, we were talking about both of those things where evaporation is one of the big controls on lake levels in the Great Lakes. And so when there's more ice, it can't evaporate. Yeah. Um, but also ice is doing a lot of the work of erosion by entraining the sediment and then carrying it away as it breaks mm-hmm. up. And so Chelsea was talking about increased variability being a big problem where, or not problem, I don't know, problem, yeah. but where where it's able to pick up ice or sediment, break away, carry it away and multiple it times. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly for erosion on, on shoreline regions, if it just freezes once and thaws once, that's a lot less erosion than multiple freezing and thawing events. So, yeah, that's that's another problem. And that's something that's being studied on the Great Lakes. It's not, it's really not studied as much in sort of smaller inland lakes. And same thing with evaporation. Um, I mean, the Great Lakes are so unique in their small watershed that evaporation is a huge part of the hydrologic budget. Um, but... You know, all of those questions sort of tie into scale, too. I mean, climate change is definitely affecting small lakes differently than big lakes, differently than the Great Lakes. Um, and so there's there's a lot to there's a lot of unknowns there when it comes to how win, how changing winter is going to affect lake ecosystems, lake ecosystems. Awesome. Well, so I do have to run. But is, is there any sort of closing thoughts or things that I feel bad to have to cut this short because it's going great, I think. But um, yeah, any anything yeah. that you really wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to? You know, next time you're out and looking at a lake, there's a lot to think about, I think, you know, what's going on beneath the water. And certainly 
get out on the lakes while they're still frozen. This is, I tell people in Madison, like this is your chance to, to explore the lake in a way that's just not possible in the summer. So take advantage of being able to walk, you know, two miles out into the middle of Mendota. I mean, this is, this is the biggest park we have right now. You know, the size of these lakes dwarf any city park. And when they're frozen in the winter, you can go and play on them. So appreciate that. You know, we might have a few weeks, a month left of, of lake ice. So, you know, get out there and, and have fun. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you talking with us and, and I had a great time. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks, Hillary, and thanks to you all for listening. Some takeaways here? Just think about how much salt you're using in the icy depths of winter and consider trying out some sand instead. Think about how the lakes that form part of your Wisconsin experience are impacted by your activities. Most of all, though, go out and enjoy the lakes responsibly, especially when they're frozen over. A quick reminder, you can support the show financially by subscribing to Patreon which also gets you cool bonuses like bumper stickers, t-shirts, and shout-outs on the show. There's a link to our Patreon page on our website, uofpod.org. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on the next bonus episode, where we'll hear about flooding in southwest Wisconsin and some really amazing interdisciplinary research aimed at helping those affected by floods tell their stories. We'll see you next time. <laughs>